Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Greetings, everyone. I'm Jesse Hipporosario, Director of Member Relations and ASHP Staff Liaison to the Section of Specialty Pharmacy Practitioners here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature on specialty pharmacy from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. So the biomarkers that we look at in asthma are fractional exhaled nitric oxide or phenol, eosinophils, and IgE. So with phenol, this is used by nitric oxide being a vasodilator that's synthesized by the airway epithelial cells. And phenol specifically can give us an idea of probable asthma-related inflammation prior to the use of inhaled corticosteroids. But as it relates to our topic today, it could also be a measure of inflammation from that type 2 or eosinophilic process despite the use of an inhaled corticosteroid. Then our next biomarker is eosinophils, which we can measure that in either the blood levels or sputum levels to identify high eosinophils in the airways. And these contain inflammatory enzymes and generate leukotrienes, which then results in an increase in airway inflammation, which can result in airway remodeling. We usually don't like remodeling for any of our organs, and that's also the case for the asthmatic airways. And then IgE, you are probably a little bit more familiar with, especially how it activates allergic reactions. IgE can interact with several cells um, that have the receptor on them. However, most specifically in the airways, its interaction with mast cells results in airway hyperresponsiveness and pro-inflammatory cytokine release. So the currently available biologic asthma, as you can see here in the table, uh, we've listed all the various agents Dr. Fleischman has mentioned and went over mechanism of action. We want to make sure that we're mindful of age indications, although many of us who are in pediatrics know that off-label medication use is a common mainstay. Uh, in certain medications, especially when um, it is a higher cost medication and prior authorizations are required, um, off-label based on age is sometimes not feasible. And so being mindful of age is important. So we have our anti-IgE agent, omalizumab, which is approved for ages six years and older for moderate to severe persistent asthma uh, with a positive skin test um, or in vitro activity to a perennial aeroallergen of sorts. And dosing is based on age, weight, as well as IgE level. And the frequency of dosing can range anywhere from two to four weeks. Um, and then we have our anti-IL-5 agents listed here, um, one of which is approved for ages six and older, methylizumab. Um, and all of these agents are add-on for severe asthma with an eosinophilic type, that is with serum eosinophils uh, greater than 150. Um, and dosing is listed as such in the column on your right. Um, with dosing frequencies often more than um, less frequent than in omalizumab every four weeks. And then we have our dupilumab, which is our anti-IL-4 and IL-13 agent at this time for moderate to severe asthma with an eosinophilic phenotype. 
um, or if they have oral dependent, oral corticosteroid dependent asthma, it is approved for ages 12 and older. However, clinical trials um, and data are currently being evaluated for younger age groups. However, and then in ages six and older, dupilumab is approved for atopic dermatitis. So that is something to keep in mind as well, should your patient have comorbidity of atopic dermatitis as well as severe asthma. And dupilumab is dosed every two to four weeks as listed here. In regards to the available biologics, some things to keep in mind are the availability or ability to be able to dose at home um, or needing to be dosed at a healthcare facility such as an infusion clinic or the allergy clinic. So our agents omalizumab, benrelizumab, and mepolizumab are given subcutaneously as noted here. And omalizumab, um, there is a requirement to have an EpiPen available per package insert requirements, as well as a number of three injections observed in clinic before doing home administration. Whereas the other agents, um, it can vary dependent on clinic specific protocols. And then uh, reslizumab is given via intravenous injection only. And so this must be done in a healthcare facility, such as an infusion clinic. And again, um, use of availability or carrying an EpiPen um, will depend on clinic protocol. And then dupilumab um, can be done at, um, at home. Um, it is still done somewhat in some clinics as well, um, in clinic, but is transitioning more to home injections and protocols may vary in terms of the requirement of the need for an EpiPen to be available. And other things that uh, may be listed in clinic protocols, depending on um, variation of practice, can include uh, an emergency script or an as-needed script for prednisone for any reaction to the injectable uh, H2 receptor antagonist, such as famotidine or diphenhydramine. Now, the role of biologics in the current guidelines, um, we have more updated guidelines, thankfully, in asthma now with the 2021 GINA guidelines and the 2020 NHLBI update. Um, as you can see here, for the 2021 GINA guidelines, for ages 6 to 11, we see biologics present at step 5 as add-on therapy um, and specifically anti-IgE and anti-IL-5 agents. And then for ages 12 years and older, it's at step 5 as add-on therapy but also includes the um, anti-IL-4 agents as well. For the 2020 update in the NHLBI asthma guidelines, uh, for ages 5 to 11, we see the presence of um, omalizumab at steps 5 and 6, um, but there is no mention of anti-IL-5 agents for such as methylizumab, which is approved for age 6 um, at this time. And for ages 12 and older, for steps 5 and 6, there is the ability to consider adding on either an anti-IgE, anti-IL-5 or 4-13 agent. Um, but in terms of specific recommendations on which or the other, um, the, the details are a little bit lacking in that regard. And so a lot of the um, guidance that we'll be discussing today is actually from the 2021 GINA guidelines, um, as we'll discuss in subsequent figures. So here we have um, some guidance in terms of selecting initial asthma biologic therapy. Uh, first and foremost, given as mentioned before, uh, with FDA age indications, we want to make sure that we consider the age of our patient to make sure that we have an agent available approved for that agent uh, patient's age um, and indication um, to improve increased ability for coverage by insurance um, and then data to support its use. So in terms of considering its eligibility for each of the anti um, IgE and IL agents, we want to consider certain criteria. For example, anti-IgE, we want to see, um, check if they've had allergen testing, such as the perennial aeroallergens. So this could include skin testing, um, as well as um, actual serum testing of allergens. 
uh, total IgE, as well as a current body weight, uh, so that we can check for our appropriate dosing. And then, of course, looking at frequency of exacerbations um, as guidance. And of note, this uh, guidance um, is from the GINA guidelines from 2021. For anti-IL-5 agents, it's been suggested to, again, look at frequency of exacerbations um, in terms of eligibility, but also blood eosinophils. So looking to see if we have um, in our patient blood eosinophils uh, 150 or greater cells per millimeter cubed. And then for anti-IL-4-13, of course, looking at frequency exacerbations and then blood eosinophils given the eosinophilic phenotype. Um, there's also been the suggestion of looking at pheno uh, for a pheno reading of 25 parts per billion or greater, um, as well as looking to see if your patient is oral steroid dependent. There have been some studies looking at possible predictors of good response for the different um, classifications of asthma biologics, as noted here. And so for our anti-IgEs, um, some data has pointed towards blood eosinophils at 260 or greater. Uh, for anti-IgE, phenos of 20 parts per billion or greater, um, allergy-driven symptoms, as noted per the um, allergen testing as part of the eligibility, and then the child onset of asthma. Versus in anti-IL-5, higher blood eosinophils may be a predictor of good response, as well as more frequent exacerbations than the previous year, and then adult onset asthma. Uh, and nasal polyps have also been noted for anti-IL-5. Anti-IL-4-13, the higher the blood eosinophils may be a predictor of good response, as well as a higher pheno. And we'll talk about the nuances of pheno in subsequent cases in this presentation. Once you've selected your biologic agent, it is suggested to continue that agent for at least three or four months and then assess clinical response. And what does that mean? Looking at exacerbation rate, um, use of systemic steroids, possibly lung function and pheno, and overall clinical symptoms and presentation, and not purely looking at um, common misnomers, looking at IgE level, for example, for response for omalizumab, which is incorrect. Um, uh, and then looking at blood eosinophils may not be the only thing that you want to look at. And then once you've assessed them, if they have a good response to continue therapy accordingly, if it's not quite clear and the patient may or may not quite be responding, but not necessarily looking worse, um, it's been recommended to extend the trial to six to 12 months and reassess at follow-up. Um, and if the patient hasn't responded with at least four months of therapy, to stop the add-on and consider changing agents and see if that uh, causes a improved response in your patient. The um, here we list here is the certainty of evidence related to outcomes. So this doesn't necessarily mean uh, the number of plus marks on this table equals the response that you're going to get regarding exacerbations, but more the quality of the evidence that they looked at those outcomes. And this was based on a systematic review from the European Academy of Allergy and Immunology that was recently published in 2020. So you'll see the various biologic agents here from omalizumab all the way to dupilumab um, and the various uh, outcomes that we often look at or consider regarding asthma management. So as you can see, all the biologics have um, looked at, have pretty quality data in terms of exacerbations. Most of them have some measure of lung function in terms of outcome, um, rescue medication use, such as albuterol. Uh, but you can see here the NRs noted in the table that they, uh, some were not reported or not part of studies, um, common studies as per the systematic review. And that includes uh, change in eosinophil count, pheno, um, and in some cases, hospitalizations. And uh, in terms of scaled measures, so uh, in um, uh, 
different from objective measures such as hospitalization or number of hospitalizations, things like scaled measures such as our asthma control test, asthma symptoms, quality of life. Um, all the agents did take a look at some form of asthma control, whether it be the ACQ or the ACT. And then interestingly, um, the detail of asthma symptoms was not reported for a lot of them, but you could allude to that with asthma control questionnaires as a lot of those questionnaires do primarily focus on asthma symptoms. And so um, in terms of that systematic review, checking that off as not reported, I would probably count the asthma control test uh, or a measure similar to that would be um, uh, sufficient. And then quality of life across the board was looked at and measured um, in terms of uh, outcomes and the evidence appeared to be uh, strong, as well as looking at um, adverse events all studies for the various agents, of course, reported appropriately at any adverse events or serious ADEs regarding their agents. So some other considerations with asthma biologics, um, some things that have been noted to um, keep in mind, especially in the age of current pandemic, um, biologic therapy and the COVID-19 vaccine probably should be given the same day, um, just to be cautious and careful, um, to allow for adverse effects or other things to be more easily distinguished between the two. Um, and so making sure to space any uh, COVID vaccine and a biological therapy injection accordingly. And then the lack of uh, data regarding SMART or MART therapy, single maintenance um, and reliever therapy uh, in patients receiving biologics. That has yet to be further delineated in the literature. So hopefully we'll see that down the road with further studies. Um, and so what if, you're, what if uh, your patient fails to respond to biologics? So recommendations have included to reassess phenotype and make sure um, that we're looking at the right phenotype and look at the various treatment options that may be related to those phenotypes. There's also the consideration of add-on azithromycin. And for those of us in pulmonary, we know we're familiar with azithromycin and other conditions such as cystic fibrosis in terms of Monday, Wednesday, Friday. But some of us in severe asthma clinics have now started to see and use uh, similar approaches for azithromycin and as far as like anti-inflammatory measures, um, in severe asthma as an add-on, but of course it is low, it is further down the pathway in terms of agents that we would consider use. Um, there's also the use of course with low dose oral steroids for maintenance, which of course why we wanna use our biologics to try to minimize and reduce that as much as possible. And then medical intervention, surgical intervention, uh, such as bronchial thermoplasty. So in considering pheno and interpreting it, we wanna make sure that we consider age because the cutoff points are different between adults and children as noted here on the table. Um, symptoms, how does the patient look? Are they, do they look like they're having um, worsening of asthma symptoms um, attributed due to increased inflammation? The timing of their symptoms and then circumstances prior to and during the testing. And what do I mean by that? So. Oftentimes, our pulmonary techs or respiratory therapists should be asking if there was anything consumed prior to um, a phenotest. And the reason being, um, there are items that can influence uh, the results um, and impact the results. And so what do we consider a significant change? Change of 20% uh, for values over greater 50 parts per billion or more, or 10 parts per billion for values lower than 50 from the last visit. So from this case, the patient went from 30 to 50 being their usual range to now 120, which is unusual. It's a huge spike. And so the first thing that should hopefully come to mind is, is there a confounder or something that might have falsely elevated the reading, especially given the patient has been reported to be adherent to therapy um, and things like that. And so some things to consider. Medications. 
current systemic steroid use can lower your values. And so if you take a pheno measurement while they're on a prednisone course, it may not be reflective of what they are every day when they're not on a systemic steroid course. Food intake is another thing that we sometimes forget about. If they're coming to clinic in the morning, did they have something in the morning that may have high nitrate content? Um, for example, bacon for breakfast as part of their morning routine. Or maybe they had something at lunch that might have high concentration of nitrates that can falsely increase values. Caffeine intake can actually lower your values falsely. So also asking about any beverage that may have been consumed prior to their phenotest. Um, and in cases of adolescents and adults um, who may be around or themselves smoking, and keeping that in mind as well, because tobacco can actually falsely lower your pheno values and the consumption of alcohol can falsely lower values as well. So just keeping in mind of things of those nature, especially when you have pheno values that are um, outside the usual scope or something that looks very um, uh, unusual. So the use of biologic agents in younger patients, um, there's always that concern of lack of data in pediatrics. Pediatrics is always the last to be studied appropriately, of course, for safety reasons. Um, there is limited data of biologics in ages less than six years of age, but thankfully we don't see too often severe asthma in children less than six years of age. It's not very common. Um, and then there are limited ages of course, agents, of course, for our six to 11. Right now we only have omalizumab and mepolizumab that are FDA approved, although there is current studies um, and data being reviewed regarding um, dupilumab for ages 6 to 11, and that's the phase 3 voyage study. And the doses that are listed here are based off of the clinicaltrials.gov listing for that particular trial. Um, and so in that uh, study, they did find that um, uh, exacerbation was reduced significantly, almost 60%, um, improved lung function overall, reduced penal levels, and improved um, asthma control questionnaire scores as well. So hopefully we'll be seeing some um, changes in terms of age indications for dupilumab as well as other agents down the road. Option four. And our key takeaways are that their available guidance on asthma biologic selection and monitoring is different between available guidelines. We want to consider various patient-specific factors, including age, biomarkers, exacerbation history, use of oral maintenance steroid therapy, and so on and so forth in selecting our agents. Home administration of asthma biologics is becoming more common, so there's more opportunities for pharmacists to be involved in the management of severe asthma. And then there still remains a need for data on safety and effectiveness of switching and especially combining biologics. So if you've got something, feel free to share it in the literature. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Jesse Hippel Rosario from ASHP Official, and thank you for listening in. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.